If you consider the path Norm Coleman traveled just to get to the United States Senate, you really should have expected the unexpected for his re-election campaign in 2008. I mean, the guy was at Woodstock. He claimed to have roadied for Jethro Tull. He served two terms as mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, one as a Democrat, one as a Republican, during which time he had a hand in bringing the National Hockey League back to the Twin Cities. In 1998, Coleman lost his bid for governor of Minnesota to a professional wrestler. Then in his first run for Senate, his opponent was killed in a plane crash weeks before the election, and ultimately, he wound up beating former Vice President Walter Mondale for the seat. Just like he drew it up, right? So when he found himself running for re-election against one of the original writers of Saturday Night Live, how surprising was it really when the race went to a recount? Without going too deep into the weeds, Coleman was 215 votes in front of Al Franken after the initial counting of the ballots, which, by the way, took two weeks to complete. The closeness of the margin triggered a recount, which resulted in Franken taking a lead of almost exactly the same size. Eventually, on June 30th of the following year, nearly eight months after election night, Franken, the political satirist, was declared the winner over Coleman, the political opportunist, by a mere 312 votes. When a race is that close, we're talking one one-hundredth of one percent of the nearly 2.9 million votes cast by Minnesotans. Any number of forces, seen and unseen, could have played a determinative role. For instance, it was 74 degrees in Minneapolis the day before that election. If it had been like 1991, when the Twin Cities were under two and a half feet of snow on November 4th, who knows how differently things might have turned out. When you're dealing with razor-thin margins at the ballot box, sometimes the ball bounces your way, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes the ball is tipped and intercepted. Stick around, see what I mean. Welcome back to the Out of Left Field podcast. Our new season of original sports storytelling launches next week, but we figured you might need a little something to distract you in the final few hours of this particularly fraught election day. Our perspective this episode is politically agnostic, but it is not apolitical. We're not sticking to sports here, not today. Rather, we're sharing a story of how sports, specifically college football, has the power to shape our political landscape. That's right the future of the American experiment could hinge on the last 65 seconds of Saturday's Iowa Northwestern game. The coronavirus? Validity of mail-in ballots? Record early voter turnout? Yeah, those probably matter too. But there are other factors in play that just might influence the outcomes of the 2020 elections in ways that are beyond the conscious will of the electorate. William Sapphire did not coin the term political football, but he did track its origins. In Sapphire's political dictionary, the iconic columnist from the New York Times noted that the metaphor suggests the, quote, unfair use of a pure project for crass partisan gain, and he cites its usage by such luminaries as Fiorello LaGuardia, the former mayor of New York City, President Harry Truman, and mobster Lucky Luciano. That sort of political football was not what Neil Malholtra had in mind when he and two colleagues published a paper back in 2010 entitled 
Irrelevant events affect voters' evaluations of government performance. In its abstract, the study wondered, quote, whether local sporting outcomes affect the electoral fortunes of incumbent politicians. Malhotra and his team examined the elections of 1964 through 2008 to determine whether the result of games played by Division I-A, or later called FBS teams, that's the top tier of college football, within 10 days of a major election, had any impact on that election. Call it a real-world application of the home field advantage. I spoke to Malhotra on Saturday, more than a decade after his study was released. There's actually like a long literature in political science uh, analyzing kind of the effect of the economy on elections. Um, So this is probably not surprising that if the GDP rate goes up or real income growth goes up before an election, the incumbent is more likely to be reelected. That's obviously something that's a big deal in this election right now. And I think kind of the main question is, is that when we see that relationship, what does that imply about how voters behave? So is it the case that voters are kind of analyzing the economic data, they're reading the Wall Street Journal and watching CNBC and deciding who the best politician to represent them is? Or is it that the economy is sort of affecting their mood and then that mood is influencing their vote choices? That's the crux of the theory right there that when a community is in a collective good mood, say, after a big win for the local college team, incumbent government officials ride the wave of positivity to a slightly better performance at the polls. We found that um, if your college football team won versus lost, the incumbent did about one percentage point better. And this is for presidential, Senate, and gubernatorial elections. The idea is is that a win before election day makes people feel better about the status quo, and therefore they're more likely to support the representative status quo, which is the incumbent. In other words, it's not the economy, stupid. It's how people feel about the economy that matters. Mal Holter walked me through an analogy involving ads for Gillette razors in the 1980s and 90s. In the 80s, he said, Gillette ads always showed a clean-cut man preparing for a date. The implication was obvious. Guys, use this razor and you'll get the girl. In the 90s, though, Gillette shifted its marketing approach. Its ads started to focus on new technology, promoting that its razors had three blades or four blades or whatever was the literal cutting edge that year. Consumers might know that more blades equals a closer shave, but they don't feel strongly about it. Some politicians, he said, get the distinction. The Elizabeth Warren campaign, he explained, for example, was all about the blades. I think kind of what it shows is, like, if you're a politician, it probably makes a lot more sense to appeal to, like, emotional reactions rather than kind of purely data. So I actually think kind of in this election, the Project Lincoln team kind of gets this which is like you could just show a bunch of graphs about the coronavirus, but that's not really how people are viewing the coronavirus. So instead, they're kind of showing ads of you know, somebody saying goodbye to their mom, but they can't visit them in the hospital and things like that. Um, so I think the advice would be, like, don't treat voters as pure data analyzers, but rather that the data kind of feeds into their emotional views of the world. Make it personal. That's right. And what's more personal than your favorite team? So that team goes out, wins a big game on Saturday. You're still buzzing about it on Tuesday. 
and you're feeling happy enough with the world that you decide not to fire your elected officials after all. I get it. Makes sense. And it makes me wonder what other things could be done in the days before an election to get the voters in the mood. Maybe Hollywood should start releasing its holiday blockbusters over Halloween weekend instead, so audiences would still carry that MCU high into Election Day. Captain America to the rescue, right? Despite the connections between Hollywood and the Democratic Party, I don't think Hollywood would sacrifice that much box office revenue to like have this small effect. Okay, dumb idea. I'll stay in my lane, Dr. Malhotra, professor of political economy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. But I do buy your theory. And while 1% in a given county might not seem like a substantial enough thumb on the scale of electoral math, I know an old Jethro Tull roadie who would beg to differ. The Saturday before that 2008 election was homecoming weekend at the University of Minnesota. The Golden Gophers were 7-1 and and ranked 17th in the nation. They were just one season removed from a 1-11 debacle, and Rose Bowl dreams were starting to form in the imaginations of the Gopher faithful. Expectations rarely had been higher, and the excitement was contagious. With 26 seconds remaining in regulation, Minnesota and Northwestern were tied 17-17. Adam Weber, the Minnesota quarterback, took the shotgun snap and fired a pass over the middle to his star receiver, Eric Decker, who would go on to play eight seasons in the NFL. The ball deflected off Decker's hands and was grabbed by Northwestern defensive back Brendan Smith, who returned at 48 yards for the game-winning touchdown with just 13 seconds left to play. Needless to say, the Minnesota fans did not go home in the kind of mood Norm Coleman, the incumbent junior senator from the land of 10,000 lakes, would have preferred. Three days later, the residents of Hennepin County showed up to vote, surely still stewing over what might have been. 657,534 votes were cast in the state's most populous county that day, 50.1% of which supported Al Franken for the Senate seat in question. Had that interception not happened, or had Minnesota killed the clock and taken the tie game into overtime, the result might have been different. And had the Gophers found a way to win, that would have meant 1% more votes in Hennepin County for Coleman. That's another 6,575 votes. Remember, Coleman was 215 votes in front when the recount began and 312 votes in the hole when it was over. That's a swing of only 527 votes. He'd have won re-election by 6,500 votes, one-tenth of that hair-breadth's victory over Mondale in his first Senate run, but plenty enough to defeat Franklin. Which leads us to the real question of the day. Does this theory hold true in the surreality TV election that we're watching unfold in 2020? Now, 2020 is its own ball of wax. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of our understanding of the social and political world is probably going to be very unique in 2020. And one thing that kind of makes it unique is that many people are now watching these games on television, you know, and if you think about like a win versus a loss in a lot of these college towns, the whole town changes on Saturday. You know, uh, the population of the town increases by a lot. These stadiums sometimes hold like a, a lot of people that are like a big fraction of the population of the town. And they're not really doing that anymore. 
Um, you know, you're not seeing like a hundred thousand people crammed in in Ann Arbor and Happy Valley, these kind of places. Maybe not. But might there be a few places where what happened on Saturday has already shaped what will happen tonight? We are in the home stretch, the final few hours of the longest election season in history. At least it feels that way. And I know a little something about long seasons. I'm a Jets fan. Like so many of you, I am all in on this breathless political drama. I'll be camped out on my couch tonight for as long as it takes to see how this story ends. I'll be feet up in my flannel pajama pants, clicker in one hand, and a bottomless cup of coffee in the other. This is not a night for nodding off. So you better believe I'll be keeping that mug full, and that I'll be trusting my ability to stay awake and alert to my Espressioni Concierge fully automatic espresso machine. Its thermo-blocking heating system means you go from beans to brewing in 22 seconds, which leaves me at zero risk that my cup will runneth empty as the results start to trickle in. I'll be calling on the adjustable steam nozzle for its froth and foam perfection. Thankfully, my Espressioni Concierge is automatic and programmable, which means I can keep my full attention fixed on the television coverage and still wind up with a cup of coffee as delicious as it was effortless to brew. You can order your Espressioni Concierge from my longtime friends at Electracraft. Visit them at electra-craft.com. That's Electra with a C, dash craft with a C, dot com. Don't forget the dash, or you'll wind up on a boating website, and then your coffee will suck. When you check out, enter Left Field 20, and you'll get 20% off your purchase. I'm the one that brought back football. By the way, I brought back Big Ten football. It was me, and I'm very happy to do it. And the people of Ohio are very proud of me. In the autopsy of the claims made during the first presidential debate of 2020 between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, this assertion by Trump was deemed to be inaccurate. Hyperbolic, let's call it. Remember, over the summer, the Big Ten announced it was not going to play football during the 2020 season due to the cresting wave of COVID-19 cases across the country. On September 1st, Trump spoke to Big Ten President Kevin Warren, urging him to press the conference's presidents to reconsider. Football in the fall would be good for business, seemed to be the president's prevailing argument. Eventually, the Big Ten did reverse course and returned to the field two weeks ago. The stated reason for the reinstatement of the season was the availability of reliable testing, not political pressure. Still, Trump seized credit, deserved or not, during the nationally televised debate. And now, with the final pre-election weekend's college football games in the books, the incumbent might be feeling like maybe he should have let the Big Ten sit it out after all. Just how are the fans in Big Ten country feeling these days? Well, Let's start with Wisconsin, widely considered one of the must-win states for Trump's re-election campaign. A dozen football players at the University of Wisconsin tested positive for the coronavirus a week after the Badgers' big win over Illinois. Their second game of the season, scheduled to be played Saturday against Nebraska, had to be canceled. There's nothing in that study to suggest how the postponement of a game might impact voter psyche, but it can't be great. There was football played in Michigan. In fact, the University of Michigan and Michigan State played each other 
with the Spartans winning in Ann Arbor in front of the smallest football crowd in the history of the Big House. That outcome was unfortunate for Trump's hopes in another crucial Rust Belt state, where according to 538.com, he hasn't been closer than seven points in the polling average in more than a month. A Wolverines win would have been worth about 500 more votes out of Washtenaw County than the 1% bump he should get out of Ingham County, home of the Spartans. It might have been better had the in-state rivals not played each other this week. And if perhaps Trump could have helped the MAC decide to reinstate its football season sooner. Eastern Michigan, Western Michigan, and Central Michigan will all play their first games of the season on Wednesday, too late to offer any benefit in the polls. Ohio State won on Saturday, which should help Trump in a swing state he won in 2016. But the Buckeyes beat Penn State, which might have provided a more valuable bump. Instead, Happy Valley may not be happy enough to help the incumbent retake Pennsylvania. And how about Iowa? Going into Saturday's game's 538's ever-evolving forecast identified three states where the candidates were within one point of each other. Georgia, where Biden was plus one, Ohio, where Trump was up six-tenths of a point, and Iowa, where Trump led Biden by seven-tenths of a point. That's Norm Coleman nail-biter range. Iowa State, which plays in the Big 12 Conference, thumped Kansas on Saturday. So there's some trickle-up karma for the incumbent coming out of Ames and Story County. The University of Iowa, though, represented the bigger catch. The Hawkeyes were at home Saturday in Iowa City, which is in Johnson County, and were hosting Northwestern, the potential tipping-point game we mentioned in the open. Iowa had built a 17-point lead in the first quarter, but were down by one, 21-20, when they started a last-gasp drive inside their 30-yard line with a minute nine left to play in the game. Just as happened when the Wildcats faced Minnesota back in 2008, the quarterback took the shotgun snap, dropped back, threw a pass over the middle that hit his receiver in the hands, and caromed away into the hands of a Northwestern defensive back pretty near midfield. Depending on how the map plays out for Trump, that lost opportunity out of Johnson County might not matter. But it could mean everything in the race for Iowa's Senate seat. As of Sunday, 538 had Joni Ernst, the incumbent, and Democratic challenger Teresa Greenfield in a dead heat. They were both given a 48.8% chance to win the election. Both of them. When you're in coin toss territory like that, every vote counts. Ernst surely is happy to count on the 1% bump she should get from Story County, but those 769 votes she might not be getting from Johnson County voters, who surely have not yet healed from that come-from-ahead loss and the first 0-2 start for Iowa in 20 seasons— might prove devastating to Ernst. It's only five one-hundredths of one percent of the total number of votes cast in Iowa back in 2016. But you ask Norm Coleman or Al Gore how their lives would be different with another 769 votes in their back pocket. It may not be decisive on the presidential level, but the race for control of the United States Senate could come down to Iowa. Our way forward as a country just might rest in the hands, the hearts, and the happiness of the football fans in the Hawkeye State. 
I hope this special Election Day episode of Out of Left Field helped take your mind off the countdown clock, at least for a little while. Who knows, maybe I've kept you company while you're waiting online to vote. In which case, thank you for taking me with you as you exercise your civic duty. If you enjoyed this episode or learned anything from it, perhaps that sports really do matter in a measurable way, please be sure to leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. Regardless, I do appreciate your patience as we work this summer and fall identifying several new stories to share with you this season, which will begin officially next week. In the meantime, stay safe, stay positive, stay healthy, and mask up. And whatever you do, if you ever find yourself playing Northwestern on the Saturday before a major election and the game is close in the closing minutes, by all means, do not throw the ball over the middle into traffic. Your country might just depend on it.